Well, we, we have come to the end of our Grace Under Fire series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, as we have been working through this book, we've seen that, that the core reality of Paul's letter here is that the transforming reality of Christ, our returning King, is our source of hope in a hostile world. It kind of holds the whole letter together. That's the, the melody running through this whole piece. And uh, today, as we come to the end of it, Paul has some final instructions uh, that I think are extremely appropriate for us to be talking about on this Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, without further ado, let me draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through the end through verse 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 12 through 28. Uh, since we have been doing this throughout this series, let me uh, invite you once again, if you're able, uh, to stand out of reverence for God's Word, just to uh, set this apart as not, uh, not a human teaching, uh, not even the preaching itself, but, but the text of God's Word coming from Him. <clears throat> Paul writes this, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, as we open Your Word, we want to know Your will. We don't need the opinions of men and preachers and commentators. Father, we need to hear from You. So give us a hunger for your word. Teach us in this moment <clears throat> to respond, to be transformed. Lord, protect us from the sinful temptation to sit in judgment of your word, but help us to humbly recognize that your word sits in judgment of us. Make us doers, not just hearers of this word. 
Open our hearts to it, Lord, as you open it to our hearts. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit and for your glory alone. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, this Thanksgiving, uh, the way this Thanksgiving has kind of shaken out uh, has been fun for me because this is our 20th anniversary this month as a church. And so last week we had our 20th anniversary dinner and, and celebration of that uh, prior to Thanksgiving. Uh, we started on Thanksgiving weekend, so I'm, I'm thinking of it uh, today as we go through this. And then next weekend, the 30th, is actually our official anniversary. So I'm just, I'm milking this baby. Man. We're, we're going to take the whole thing and celebrate as much as we can. I think that's appropriate because celebrating what God has done is our tribute to him as we live our lives our lives should be a reflection of that celebration of that rejoicing in him our thankfulness as we consider the the text that we just read i think the the core reality that you should see here hopefully hopefully this doesn't feel like it's something that I'm stretching, but, but something that you can see as we connect the dots is that the transforming grace of our returning King shines through His grateful people. The transforming grace of our returning King shines through His grateful people. And like the breaking of dawn on the, on the landscape, by the grace of God dawning to us and through us, there is his light, His glorious light shining on those around us. And the whole world is warmed and lit by this grace. And it breaks upon the earth through the church, through God's people. So as Paul comes to the end of this letter and he gives us these instructions, he gives the Thessalonians these instructions with the full intent that it would not just be for the elders, but read to the church and also with the understanding as all of these letters were that they would be read among the churches the holy spirit of god was inspiring it so that we would be reading it even now today to hear not from paul but from god that's the goal that's what we're looking for and as we do this in the midst of all of it remember paul's writing this letter to a church in a hostile society, a society that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hate it. They chased Paul out. They actually pursued him in the next town so that, so that they didn't want to hear him preaching here, but they didn't want to hear him preaching anywhere. And so he's writing to these brothers who are left behind, these brothers and sisters who, even though he was worried about them, turns out they were absolutely transformed by the grace of God, even under fire. And it was changing them. And so he was encouraged by it. And as he writes to them in this last portion, it's not just an add-on. i got to tell you, for, for a long time, I, I think I read it wrong. Not that I missed the, the, the point, but I... I didn't see all there was to see because I saw it, and maybe you have too, as just an add-on, as something that, that you know, Paul gets to the end and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, 
I, I told you all these things. Now here's some stuff I just remembered I want to stick in here. And that's not at all how this comes about. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit from the beginning, but Paul is writing this as a natural flow and extension of the rest of the letter. Whenever you read the greetings in the epistles or the, or the, uh, the closing thoughts, those aren't accidental. Every word of the Scripture is inspired by God and is useful. It's there intentionally. So the core reality of this is that the transforming grace of our returning King shines through His grateful people. And as we are <clears throat> um, in this Thanksgiving weekend, hopefully your Thanksgiving hasn't ended with Thursday, but is continuing. And I think it's important for us to recognize what Paul's saying here is that we need to be living as thankful people all the time. Notice, we celebrate Thanksgiving Day, right? I, I mentioned previously that I recently found out that November is Gratitude Month. And, and, and that's, that's nice. Um, but Thanksgiving is different than gratitude. How is it different? Well, both involve being thankful, right? Being appreciative. But this idea of gratitude is sort of a nebulous idea. I have a feeling. But that's not what the day celebrates. The, the day celebrates the giving of thanks. Thanksgiving, true gratitude, requires an object. Not just a subject. It's not just that, that I feel thankful, grateful feelings in, in some vague way. But I am specifically offering, giving my appreciation, my gratitude, my thanks to God whose faithfulness is great, so He deserves the glory. We should give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His love endures forever. That's what Dennis read for us from Psalm 107. It's what we sang about. But it has to be more than that. Matt Redman did a song a number of years ago that we do here pretty regularly called The Heart of Worship. And the revelation, if you will, the, the, the insight that God had given to him is that, you know, we're, we're singing all these great songs. And we're doing all these really cool things. But if that's all we're doing, we're missing the point. It has to be more than a song. A song in itself isn't what God requires. No, what he needs, what he demands, is a life lived for him lived out of gratitude for the grace that He's extended to us, lived in light of our returning King. In fact, I uh, found an article from uh, November, November 24th of 2020. You might remember something going on in 2020 that sort of disrupted some things. <clears throat> it was a strange year, a difficult year for many, a year of loss, a, a year of isolation, a year of pain in so many ways. This is an article from the Spurgeon Center. Uh, uh, I don't often read articles to you or, or uh, such things, uh, but I'm going to do it today. So you can find it at Spurgeon.org. The, uh, the writers are Jeff, uh, Jeff Chang. The British spelling of Jeff. Just, that means he's smart, right? That, just waiting for a reaction, that's all. <laughs> uh, Jeff Chang and Micah Powell. Anyway, uh, here's, here's what they write. 
It's Thanksgiving season once again in America. This is the time of year when we gather with family and friends to feast together, giving thanks for God's goodness in the previous year. Here in 2020, however, Thanksgiving comes at a difficult time, to which we might all add our hearty amen. Just a little side note, it's 2023, and I know enough of your lives that I know for some of you, 2023 is even harder than 2020 was. We got stuff, right? We We got things that weigh us down, that are hard on our hearts. we got to recognize that. Anyway, for so many, the article continues, this has been a year of isolation, uncertainty, fear, and even loss. Now, as many states once again enforced restrictions on social gatherings, it seems even Thanksgiving will not escape the troubles of 2020. But what if Thanksgiving was not merely an event but a way of life. Spurgeon spoke of Thanksgiving hundreds of times in his writings and sermons, but Thanksgiving was not an occasional event rooted on circumstances or holidays or good food. Rather, Thanksgiving was to be a part of the Christian life. This is what Spurgeon called thanksgiving. They go on to quote Spurgeon here. The quote is, Then, brethren, we ought always to be thanksgiving. I think it is a better thing than thanksgiving, thanksgiving. How is this to be done? By a general cheerfulness of manner, by an obedience to the command of Him by whose mercy we live, by a perpetual, constant, delighting ourselves in the Lord and submission of our desires to His mind. Oh, I wish that our whole life might be a psalm, that every day might be a stanza of a mighty poem, so that from the day of our spiritual birth until we enter heaven, we might be pouring forth sacred ministry in every thought. I, let, me, let me correct that. I misread the word because it's a weird word. That we might be pouring forth sacred minstrelstry. Okay. In every word. In other words, like flowing forth like minstrels. Okay. Returning to the quote. Uh, in every thought and word and action of our lives. Let us give Him thankfulness and thanks living. End quote. This kind of thankfulness was rooted in the character and acts of God. Therefore, amid trials and difficulties, the Christian ever has reason for praising and thanking God for His unchanging goodness. Reflecting on Psalm 107, one Spurgeon writes, It is all we can give Him and the least we can give. Therefore, let us diligently render to Him our thanksgiving. The psalmist is in earnest in the exhortation, hence the use of the interjection, Oh, oh, give thanks to the Lord, to intensify His words. Let us us be at all times thoroughly fervent in in the praises of the Lord, both with our lips and with our lives, by thanksgiving and thanksliving. Jehovah, for that is the name here used, is not to be worshipped with groans and cries, but with thanks, for He is good. And these thanks should be heartily rendered, for His is no common goodness. He is good by nature and essence, and proven to be good in all the acts of His eternity. Compared with Him, there is none good, no, not one. But He is essentially perpetually, superlatively, 
infinitely good. We are the perpetual partakers of His goodness and therefore ought above all His creatures to magnify His name. Our praise should be increased by the fact that the divine goodness is not a transient thing, but in the attribute of mercy abides forever the same. End quote. The article continues, What if before we ever begin our Thanksgiving season, we were to start living thanks before God in a continual state? What if we prayerfully recognized where all things come from every day of the year? Even more, what if our thanksgiving was rooted not in our circumstances, but in God Himself? Giving thanks to God for all His blessings and provisions at Thanksgiving time is a wonderful tradition. But continuing this year-round becomes more than tradition. It becomes a way of life made possible by the love of God shown to us in Christ. This is how we can live in a state of constant praise and adoration for our Lord. Whether your Thanksgiving celebrations this year are marked by festivity or isolation, may Spurgeon's words and the Word of God show us what true Christian thankfulness is all about. And they finish with another quote from Spurgeon, Thanksgiving is a good thing. Thanksgiving is a better. End quote. That's the end of the article. And it seems to capture really what Paul is saying in this text. Both the writers and the prince of preachers are expressing this idea that our words or a momentary celebration, having a feast and a gathering, is in itself far short of what we owe God in gratitude, in thankfulness. As Dennis began the service with Psalm 107, there are, uh, we, we only read a portion of it, it's a fairly long psalm, it, 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 the 43 verses go through several different statuses or, or, or states of being in life. And, and as each of these fool and wanderer and, and those who are struggling, as we go through each of these things, there's a reflection on the goodness, the grace of God. And because God's love endures forever, His goodness, His compassion, His kindness, His undeserved or unearned favor to people, because it goes on forever, it's great in its faithfulness, as Jeremiah would say. It is only right and fitting that we should give thanks to the Lord. That's the natural response. When we receive something and we are humble and attentive enough to actually recognize we don't deserve this, right? Every once in a while, I am overcome with... <laughs> I was going to say every once in a while I'm overcome with emotion, but you're just going to laugh as soon as I say that. Okay, so I'm fairly often overcome with emotion. But every once in a while I'm overcome with emotion when we're singing a song like my tribute. And it just strikes me just how overwhelmingly undeserving I am of a God like this. A holy God who by all rights 
should have destroyed every one of us. We, none of us should have ever seen the light of day. I deserve to be in hell this moment right now, and every breath I take is His grace. This is true for every unbeliever as well. The fact that, that we go through any life, good life, bad life, any life, this side of hell is God's grace. The fact that He loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, not, not when we thought, boy, I think I'm going to seek after God. Hey, you know, I think I've I got to get my life right. I'm, I'm going to turn this thing around and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some things. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get better. I'm going to try to live a godly life. Not then, but right in the middle of our wretchedness, right in the middle of our rebellion, God sent His Son to die for a dirtbag like me and like you. Not, not trying to hurt your feelings or insult you, but in light of who God is, there's none righteous. No, not one. We weren't seeking Him. We didn't choose Him out of our wonderfully holy will. If it were left to my flesh, I never would have chosen Him at all. And the only reason that any of us ever even look up to Him, ever even ask the questions, is because the Holy Spirit puts it in our heart to do so. R.C. Sproul has said a number of times, and I'm sure many others have said it, but I keep hearing Sproul say it. That no one has ever been dragged into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. Instead, God changes our will. He gives us the want to. He changes our desire. So if I desire Him, it's because of His grace to me. <clears throat> Thanksgiving is indeed a good thing. But Spurgeon agrees with Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5 that thanksgiving is a better. The transforming grace of our returning king shines through his grateful people. Paul, as he's writing to this people in, in, a, in a, just a godless world, and when I say godless, I mean devoid of the one true living God. they got tons of gods. they got lots of gods. Everybody's worshiping something, not unlike today. Even the atheist worships something, whether it's their own intellect, reason. The French Revolution, they actually erected a, a statue to worship reason. That's atheism, right? Man, we're born to worship something, as the great 20th century theologian Bob Dylan said you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We're made for it. When we recognize that God has given us grace, when that really sinks in, and we begin to connect with what that means, everything else just seems to become a lot smaller. The worries of the day, even my own sins, I'm overwhelmed with remorse and regret and broken and contrite about those sins. But, you know, they, 
They just seem to get swallowed up in the flood of His love when we recognize His grace. My, um, my grandfather, I had one grandfather who uh, walked with the Lord and uh, gave us every, every confidence of his salvation. I had another gra- grandfather who was, a, who was a great grandfather. He was a great granddad. He was, he was fun. He was enjoyable. He was, he was much more fun than, than my other grandfather. And he knew deep in his heart that he was a wretched sinner. What he couldn't seem to grasp was that there is a great Savior. And I hope with all my heart that he came to that realization in his final moments. I know he knew the truth. He didn't receive it. Because he knew his sins were huge. But he saw God as smaller than his sins. And believed he could not be saved. If there's anybody hearing me here today, and you've been wrestling with that, let me assure you, You are worse than you think. And so am I. But the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ absolutely dwarfs the vastness of our sin. The darkness is swallowed up in the light of His love. And all we have to do is turn to Him. In that psalm, and I, I'm tempted to have you turn there, you can, you can look at it for yourself later. In, in Psalm 107, God continually saves and provides and gives to the undeserving. Why? Because they ask. That's our God. He wants to save us. He wants to change us. He wants to pour out His grace on us. All we have to do is ask. But we have to ask on His terms. We have to come open-handed, on our knees, offering nothing and only accepting. See, this is the difference between the faith that saves and the religion that binds and kills. When we come to God with religion, And we try to offer Him our good behavior or our giving. We want to win points with God through sacred ceremony or through many words in our prayers. We want to impress God by supporting missionaries or, or living generously. I can just I can just see God, our great Father, just shaking his head. Why, why are you trying to buy my love? You can't pay that price. You have nothing that I didn't give you anyway. 
So you can't buy my love. Just need you to come humble, thankful, and open to receive. And anything else, anything more or less than that, is sinful ungratitude. When you give me a gift, and I try to pay you for the gift, that's not gratitude. That's an insult. Don't insult God by trying to win points with Him through religious activity or your goodness. The moment you begin to think you're good enough to impress God, you better be petrified because you're about to fall off the cliff. It's the grace of God that transformed Paul. So that while Paul was being persecuted, he kept going around planting churches. You're going you're gonna to chase me out? You're going to try and stone me? I'm, I'm running. <laughs> See ya. Hey guys, let me tell you about Jesus. That's what he does. Why does he do that? It's not because he feels compelled by someone out there. It's not because, well, this is my job and I get paid for it. That's not what's happening with Paul. He is facing hardship after hardship after hardship. Severed relationships, people that he loved that don't want anything to do with them. You know what that's like. If you've been in Christ very long, you've experienced that already. But he was transformed by the grace of God because he knew he was the chief of sinners. And God gave his son for him. If he died for me, how can I not live for him? It's the least I can do. That's thanks living. And so Paul did that. And everywhere he went, that was the life that he conveyed. That was the life that he modeled. That was the life that he preached and he exhorted each of these believers that he encountered to live that way. Just love Jesus. And the rest will take care of itself. That was Luther's point. When he discovered, after years of striving in religion, when he discovered the great grace of God in the resulting thoughts that came from him and, his, and, and those who came in his footsteps, <coughs> produced the five solas of the Reformation, as we often call them. We're saved by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, for the glory of, uh, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This comes from recognizing I can't do anything, but the just will live by faith. It's our faith that sets us right with God. Not because the faith itself is the thing, but because God's already given us His grace. He's already offered it to us. And the faith just says, thank you. In light of what you're giving me, I'm all yours. That's it. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Now, 
Paul ends this letter with these final instructions because while that's it in a nutshell, that doesn't mean we stop thinking. We stop living. We stop responding. Again, I've said this before. I think I said it just a couple of weeks ago. That mentality that we have that, well, you know, I got saved. I said the prayer and, and I did these things. So now I'm in this relationship. I've received God's grace. Bully. That, that mentality... Yes, I just said bully from the pulpit. <laughs> bully pulpit. Anyway, stop talking. Anyway, as we're, as we're doing this, we have this tendency then to treat it like a wedding or a marriage where we have the wedding and we have the big beautiful party and we say, I do and I love you and I kiss the bride and we celebrate and then that's it. And then I just sit on the couch for the rest of my life and don't do anything. And I never serve my wife. I never express my love to my wife. I don't do the things that God requires, that love requires. If I live that way, do I really love my wife? Somebody tell me. Why did only the women answer that? I heard all female voices. Men, tell me, if that's how I live, do I love my wife? No. In the same way, if that's how I approach my relationship with God, what does that tell me about my thankfulness for His grace? If that's how I live, have I been transformed by His grace? Tell me. No. That's what Paul's getting at. He's given them encouragement. He's connected with them and, and reminded them that the reason you could trust this message is because we lived in such a way amongst you that, that, that you could trust us. Because a message worth trusting needs a messenger worth, worth trusting. And so as he laid that out for them and he talked about what it meant then to him to see them walking in faith, he also then... Uh, through that same emotion conveyed to them how the thing that encouraged him was that the gospel came to them not just with words, but with power. It was a powerful gospel. And it was received by them powerfully. And it created a powerful change in their lives. And that change in their lives changed their outlook. Because Christ is not a concept. Christ is real. Jesus Christ lived and died and is returning. And because they knew that to be real, they held that conviction deeply in their hearts. They would cling to it. It changed everything about how they lived. It even changed how they grieved in the face of death. So he, he dealt with those issues. And then he goes on to tell them, look, this is because you've receive the grace of God, your identity has changed. Now you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. He said that to the Corinthian church. I'm stealing it for this one. You belong to God. Now live like it. Live like those who belong to God. Live a life that pleases Him because you have been transformed by the reality of Christ our returning King. And when that's true in your life, then your life reflects the reality of Christ through the relationships that you have. He then warned them, just prior to this section, about the fact that 
Christ is returning, and when He returns, it will be sudden and unexpected. People will be going about their business like everyday life, and however you live every day, that's how you're going to be living when Christ returns. And for some, that will be horror. And for some, it will be joy. And you get to choose. Are you His or are you His enemy? It's the only two categories of human beings that exist. Everything else is a construct we've made up. You're either His or you're not. And all that is not His will be destroyed and replaced with that which is. So His return becomes a horror, a horror to those on the outside. And a, a joy overwhelming to those who belong to Him by faith. Now He says, here's what I want you to do. The transforming grace of our returning King shines through His grateful people. When we are living gratefully as we wait for Christ's return. His grace will shine through us as we live as those who are thankful for His grace. So looking at the text, I'm going to back up to verse 10 just for context. And then we'll flow into this. Right now my wife is thinking, he hasn't even gotten to his points yet. We're going to be here a while. Buckle up, man. No, no. Just kidding. We'll, we'll move more quickly than the beginning as we go along. Ha having worked through all of the, these practical and theological things, in verse 10, flowing into what we'll see in verses 12 and following, Paul writes this, He, Christ, died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead or alive, when He returns, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. This is, the, this is kind of the, the stepping stone into these final instructions. It's not like here's the end of the letter and now we're going to tack on this extra stuff. This is the P.S. kind of deal. No, what he's saying is because Christ is returning and because you are in Him, it's not, you're not in the dark like those who are outside. Those who don't believe, they belong to the darkness. You belong to the night, to the light and the day. So his coming won't surprise you like a thief in the night. It'll be like, hey, he's finally here. This is fantastic. Let's go party. That's the mentality. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as the Thessalonians were actually already doing. Now, in light of that, he says, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those, or your translation may say acknowledge, it may say honor. There's a variety of different uh, wordings you'll find in your various translations out there. Uh, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So verses 12 and 13 show us this point. We shine God's grace by recognizing authorities as gifts from Him. We shine God's grace by recognizing authorities as gifts from Him. Uh, a friend of mine uh, out in California has been preaching in Romans, and he spent like, I don't know, a thousand weeks in, in Romans 13. I think I'm exaggerating. It wasn't a thousand. 
But it, it was, it's been a long time in Romans 13. Why? Because dealing with authority is tough for us. I think it's tough for humans in general. I think it's extra tough for Americans. I know it's tough for me. I have a natural distrust of government. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. There's a natural distrust there. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying it's just it's the way I'm wired. Maybe I, you know, maybe it's too much George Orwell. I, I don't know, but but there's 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 something scary about those people in power. But that's not what we're called to. Now, when Paul is saying this here, he's specifically talking about the leadership of the church, those who work hard among you, indicating that this, these are diligent leaders who are invested in you. Not somebody sitting off in an ivory tower telling you this is what it's supposed to be, but, but the people, just as Paul described him and his co-workers, himself and his co-workers earlier in chapter 2, he's saying, look, we didn't just share the gospel with you. We shared our lives with you. We, we were working with you. We were living with you. We were eating, and, and our, our kids were playing together. Paul didn't have any kids, but you know what I'm saying. And so there, there was this constant investment in one another. That's the picture that he gives us here. You should recognize their hard work among you. And acknowledge them. In, in other words, the, the, the reason that you see so many different wordings there is this acknowledge, respect, honor, is essentially to recognize them as who they are. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you don't have to look it up right now, but you can write it down and look it up for your homework. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the gifts of pastor, evangelist, teacher, uh, that these are gifts but specifically, he says that the people filling these roles are God's gifts to the church for the building up of the body to equip the saints for works of service, which should, right out of the gate, explode the myth of the professional clergy doing the work of the church while the laity, regular folks like, like all of us, just kind of being passive and, and, and stuck under that authority. No, we are one body, and we serve different functions. And so when we have our overseers, or elders, we, we call them overseers here, in the church, these are folks that are in this position because God has caused you to recognize them as being worthy of filling that, that role. There has been a call to them, They've been approved by the church, and they work hard to try to lead the church and make sure that we, in all that we do, are focused on walking the path of God, holding tight to the Scriptures, living right. Do we do it perfectly? Heavens no. Hopefully we do it well. But I can, I can tell you, I've never served with finer men. These are people who are faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. The, the authorities that God has placed over us, whoever that might be, sometimes they're less faithful than others. Sometimes humans are hard. The principle that he's talking about here in the church applies as well to government officials, 
to the police officer that you think is harassing you, to that boss that just seems to constantly be criticizing you, to the parent that you don't think really sees things rightly so you're not sure you need to obey them. There's a tough one. Wives, your husbands, that God has placed an authority over you, which means he has responsibility for you. Doesn't mean he's better than you. It means he has a job and you have a job. And you both have to portray Christ in the church in that job. That's, that's how we demonstrate our reverence for Christ, is by submitting to one another, by serving one another. We shine God's grace by recognizing authorities as gifts from Him. That involves honoring them, loving them, hold them in high regard with a genuine love. We should have an affection for those who are over us. That's not always easy. But if you've been married for more than 10 minutes, you know love ain't always easy, right? Somebody say amen. Those are married people say amen. Because sometimes... While we have that genuine affection, we have to choose to nurture and water and fertilize that affection, right? I know my wife loves me. She has a genuine affection for me. But brother, let me tell you, I'm not easy to be married to all the time. Sometimes she's got to work hard to keep that affection. If you've raised children, you know there are periods when it's harder than others. We always love our children in theory. Loving our children in practice takes effort. And if there's not an amen, then we don't have any parents here. Or you're afraid to say it. <laughs> Listen, part of this is to live peaceably. That's not a tack on, and, and I, I wrestled with, as I you know, was looking at this, I thought, well, this living uh, living at peace with one another uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 14. I, I'm sorry, in verse 13. feels like it should be with verse 14, and there should be a paragraph break. And in some translations, there is a paragraph break there. And as I was looking through, just trying to make sure I'm understanding it right, it seems that I was missing it, because I saw that as a general thing, but it seems to be flowing right out of this idea of submission to authority. And not mere submission, but submission with joy. It's in keeping with what Paul says elsewhere. It's in keeping with what Peter says. It's in keeping really with the, with the, the idea that Jesus portrays. I don't know that, that he uses the same kind of language, but, but as we see the, the mentality here, our submission to authorities, especially those in the church, needs to be one of, that includes honor, respect, affection, and joy. We should do it willingly. We should live with them under their authority willingly, gladly, so that the work does not become a burden and toilsome for them. Because that doesn't gain anybody anything. But when we submit willingly, when we submit to our parents with joy, not just because we fear the repercussions, when we submit to our, within our marriage 
because of the fact that God called us to do it, not because we feel you know, compelled to, and certainly not because of some husband who's lording it over us, I'm the man, do what I say. Brother, don't do that. that just, just, just don't. That's not right, it's not Christ-like, and it is not biblical. The way a husband is to lead is to lay himself down for his wife, to serve, to sacrifice, to love her like he loves himself. Enough about that. As we're, as we're looking at this, we need to recognize that we shine God's grace by recognizing authorities as gifts from Him. Because we are transformed by His grace, we don't look at authority as whether we are wielding it or whether we are under it. We don't look at it the same way the world looks at it. We understand all authority as being given, being set up by God to do a particular role in whether they recognize it or not. If we're talking about government officials, most of those who govern us, we re- can recognize, are not Christ followers. That's just basic fact. You can you know, wrestle with that to whatever extent you want. But that's not the point. The king bears the sword because God gives him that. And he gives him that for a purpose, to do good, to restrain evil. These are the things that all authorities are to do. So we see it from God's perspective because of grace. When we submit to authority, we don't submit because the authority is worthy of that, because they've earned that respect. And I've used the the illustration of the military many times. You respect the rank, right? Those of you who have served, you know. That person that is over you, you might not respect them at all as a person. Sometimes you get that... Butterbar lieutenant who thinks he is is the archangel Michael and you know he's really just a putz. But you respect the bar. Eh, it's a little bar, but it's still respected, right? In the same way, in all authority, you don't respect the authority because they're better than you. You respect the authority because God has placed them there, and we are all under God's authority. And we express our submission to God by submitting to others. Moving on. This leads to us living peaceably, not quarrelsomely. And we shine God's grace by giving God's grace as we submit, as we recognize the authorities for who they are, those given to us by God as gifts. Secondly, we see in verses 14 and 15 that we shine God's grace by remembering that we are all equally unworthy of it. That we are all equally unworthy of it. We shine by God's grace by remembering that we are all equally unworthy of that. What, what, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Let's read it. 14. We urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. When we recognize that the person that has wronged me doesn't even compare to the wrong that I've done to God. They need God's grace. I need God's grace. When I see the brother or sister in the church who is idle or a troublemaker, it is fitting and loving to warn them. To say, listen, this is not how God wants you to live. We've got to get this right. Even in appropriate situations, 
under the appropriate authority to bring various consequences as prescribed in the Bible. But the whole point here is that as we do it, we do it out of love for them. We do it remembering that we are not better than them. When we submit to authority, we don't do it because they're better than us. And when we warn others, we don't do it because we are better than them. We are all equally unworthy of God's grace. So, <coughs> pardon me. So we warn others with love. We encourage the disheartened. We help the weak, those who are struggling, who are under the weight of sin or the weight of struggle and trial. We're all going to be there. If we haven't already been there, it's coming for us. Weakness is part of living in this fallen world. Sometimes the burdens are too heavy to bear. So we strengthen the weak, we help them. It's significant that he says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Because it really doesn't matter who you're dealing with, whether it's the person you're warning, the person you're encouraging, and, and the person you're strengthening and helping. Everybody can wear on your nerves. It's just true. We all have different brains. We're all, there's going to be friction. Grace is the lubrication for the gears of relationship. And if we don't give one another grace, that friction will cause the entire relationship to seize up. We have to be patient with everyone. Notice that we're called to seek the good of others, not to seek revenge. Don't pay anybody back wrong for wrong. That does not mean that, that we don't uh, you know, respect the civil authorities and use that. There are consequences to all choices, always. And my choices determine my destiny. When someone is committing a crime, it is not, let me just say, state this as clearly as I can, it is not biblical, Christian, or grace-filled to just say, well, Jesus loves everybody, so there's no consequences for your actions. Listen, when you have an abusive spouse, they have to submit to the authority. You submit to them to the extent that, that submission is due in that role, but that abusive spouse must be turned over to the authorities. It cannot be held in the church where we can just make everything happy and, and soft. That's not how biblical authority and submission works. And that is not what grace is about. I can forgive, but reconciliation is another thing entirely. Forgiveness means I let them off my hook. I'm going to entrust God to exact justice. God is always just. Nobody gets away with anything because we will all stand before Him. And either I will pay for every sin or my sin will already have been paid for by Christ. And there is no in-between. But even in this life, there are consequences to our choices. Didn't we just see that in a whole year of going through the book of Numbers? Right? 
Our unfaithful choices have consequences. That doesn't negate God's faithfulness to His promises, but do not believe for a moment that when you come across criminal activity, that it's the Christian duty to sweep it under the rug. That is the opposite of Christian duty. Didn't mean to get on a side trail there, but it's just been such an issue in our culture that I feel like we needed to talk about it. So we shine God's grace by remembering that we are all equally unworthy of it. Also notice, we shine God's grace by conduct that flows from a thankful heart. We shine God's grace by conduct that flows from a thankful heart. These, this next portion, and this, by the way, uh, is our memory verse, even though it's three verses. It's our memory verse for, uh, for this week. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verses 16 to 18. So important, I'm going to read it again. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice we've shifted here from external conduct to the internal attitude. So we start by rejoicing. When? Always. How? Choose to find joy in God's sovereignty. Recognize that He's in control. Well, i got a bad circumstance. Yeah, but you're not rejoicing in the circumstance. You're rejoicing in the midst of the circumstance, but you're rejoicing in God and the fact that He has it all in His hands, good, bad, and ugly, all in His hands. And He's working it all out to accomplish a greater purpose. We shine God's grace by conduct that flows from a thankful heart. So we rejoice always. We also pray continually, without ceasing. This ongoing, regular, constant prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, again, you can write it down and look it up for your homework for the sake of time. But in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8, we see this kind of expanded. Like one of those parts diagrams where it's exploded and you see all the various parts there. It's like that. And, and, and this idea of rejoicing is central to it. It's choosing to see things through the lens of the transforming grace of our returning King. And when I begin to do that, then I turn to God with my needs. Rather than the, letting the anxiety overwhelm me, and, and most people deal with anxiety or stress at various levels. All of us have stressors that come to us. Most of us let it in. And it can weigh our hearts down. And we need to be able to recognize, I don't have to do that. I can take that junk and I can, I can lay it on the altar. I can give it to Him. I can cast it at the feet of Jesus. I can cast all of my anxiety on Him because He cares for me. This prayer recognizes that God gives, that God changes, that God shapes, transforms, lifts up, rescues, saves. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. 
His love endures forever. That's the attitude that leads to this constant state of prayer. A a constant mentality that openly sees that God Himself gives me what I don't deserve. Therefore, I appreciate it. And give thanks to Him. Notice verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. That word translated all there comes from the Greek word meaning all. It ain't rocket science, folks. What circumstances should we give thanks in? Our good ones? No, in all circumstances. Does that mean we say, God, thank you for this terrible thing that happened? Probably not. But we can thank Him that He's in the middle of this terrible thing with us. Where was God when I was going through this terrible situation? When I was facing this abuse? When I was being so unjustly treated? Where was God? He was right there with you. It was heartbreaking because that sin against you was first a sin against Him. That's how it got there in the first place. So I can give thanks to Him in all circumstances when I'm focused on His grace. That's His will for us. For for we who belong to, to Christ Jesus, for us who belong to Christ Jesus, I apologize for my grammar, we need to recognize that God's will, His plan for us, is our sanctification. He said that earlier. So if, if, if it's our sanctification, our, our being made like Christ is a good way to, to think of that term, sanctification. Being set apart from him, for Him. As we are becoming more and more like Christ, that's God's will for us. How do we get there? Through this thankful heart. When we recognize His grace, And we humbly receive that. And it transforms us and flows out of us. That's where the sanctification happens. That's where the grace dawns in our life. And so we shine God's grace by conduct that flows from a thankful heart. Verses 19 to 22 point out that we shine God's grace by clinging to the truth of His Word. I'm a bit over time, so I'm going to shorten these up. Thankfully, these are some of my shorter points anyway. There's a lot that could be said on this uh, next section. but I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can so we can cut to the chase. Paul writes, Do not put out the Spirit's fire in the NIV. Uh, your other translations may say, Do not quench the Spirit's fire. Uh, I read one that said, Do not douse the Spirit's fire. Do not squelch, I think was one. Uh, as, as we look at this, it all has that same connotation. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. You know, as I, as I read this paragraph, it reminds me of 1 John 4 where John, in in chapter 4 of that first letter he writes, calls us to test the spirits. There there are lots of spirits, depending on on who you talk to, you may take that as as a spiritual, demonic, or angelic influence. I think that's valid. 
or it may just be the, the spirit of a person, the spirit of a teacher. I think that's also valid. John's point, Paul's point here is test it. The Zyger paraphrase is don't be stupid. It, it doesn't mean that anything that, that claims to be some spiritual insight needs to get shut down. It doesn't mean that when someone comes and is, is proclaiming and preaching the Word of God, that we harden our hearts and, and shut it off. There is a warmth that comes from the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a fire. There's a passion and a compassion. And when we allow sin to take hold of us, it hardens us. It douses that fire in us. Don't do things that throw water on the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life. So if you're living contrary to the grace of God, if you're living in a way that, that just thumbs its nose at God's grace, believe me, you're not going to hear the Spirit talking to you, nudging you, pulling you along. At the same time, we want to be wise. Because there are a lot of people... Tell me if you know that this is true. There are a lot of people out there claiming to speak for God who do not. There are a lot of people out there claiming to be prophets who are not. I had a vision. I had a dream. Or one of my favorites. God gave me a word for you. Well, why didn't God just tell me? This is what God's telling me to tell you. Now, here's the problem. The moment you tell me that, my ears are starting to close, right? I'm like, kick rocks, man. I'm not interested. But when I do that, my attitude is not a grace-filled attitude. So then I am not ready to receive it when God brings a true word. Because sometimes He does through the admonition of others. Sometimes someone in your life and I would say almost always, I don't use always and never very much, almost always someone with whom you have a relationship, and the relationship gives authority to that word. But God will use others to speak into your life some truth that you're blind to. And if my heart is hard and quenching the Spirit, and I'm, I'm treating prophecy, the proclaiming of God's Word, with contempt, I'm not going to be able to receive that. Now, I have to be discerning because there are those people out there who are going to misquote scriptures, who are going to claim the authority of a direct revelation from God. I'm going to tell you 99.9999% of the time when somebody claims that they are bringing you a direct revelation from God, it is not. It is not. And I'm not going to try to make a case for a cessationist view of, of such gifts. What I am going to tell you is that absolutely every time someone has a direct revelation from God, if it is from God, it will be absolutely consistent with the Scriptures. If it's not, it's not from God. If it is, it's unnecessary because we got the book. So, as we are proceeding, we have to have a heart that's open to receive the truth of God's Word, but it must be the truth of God's Word. 
we have to check all things against the Scriptures. That was what Paul discovered in chapter 17 of Acts when he gets chased out of Thessalonica and he goes to Berea. The Bereans were considered more noble than the Thessalonians because the Bereans didn't just take Paul's word for it and they didn't just shut him down. They opened the book. They looked at the Scriptures and they tested everything that Paul said to see if it was found in the Bible. And when they found it was true, they received it with great joy and it changed them. This needs to be the hallmark of us. This is how we shine God's grace by clinging to the truth of His Word. We develop in ourselves a hunger to hear more from God but not to hear more than God is saying. Again, I've said this before, and I will offend some of you with it. I'm sorry. Uh, I, when I see things like Jesus Calling, the most popular devotion in Christian publishing, and perhaps uh, one of them for sure in Christian publishing history, I want to encourage you to run fast and far. Not because everything that's said in there is harmful, Perhaps nothing said in there is harmful except for the platform from which it was said. And in the original introduction of that, Ms. Young, as she was writing it, said, I knew that God spoke to us through His Word. They've changed the introduction, by the way. I knew that God spoke to us through His Word, but I needed more. God's Word's not enough. I needed more than that. And so this book purported to be Jesus speaking directly to her. Guys, I don't do a lot of condemning directly up here, but I'm condemning this directly from up here. When someone claims that they are writing what God has directly given to them that is innately, inherently a claim that says, my book is equal to this book. This is what the reformers fought against. That the word of man could ever be equal to the word of God. When anybody claims to have a truth that goes beyond the scriptures, run. We shine God's grace by clinging to the truth of his word. Let me, uh, let me just wrap up with this last point here as best I can. We shine God's grace as God Himself faithfully works in us. We shine God's grace as, God's, as God Himself faithfully works in us. This is the point of the last section here from verses 23 to 28. There's this benediction, <clears throat> and if you've been here, you know I've been um, praying this benediction over you as we close each service, throughout, or most every service throughout this series. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming, <coughs> excuse me, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. We're called to be faithful. But if you know yourself, you know 
We're not good at it. We are weak-willed and failing. One of my favorite verses in all of hymnody is the third verse of, uh, of uh, Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. I wish it weren't my favorite verse. But I, it resonates with me when we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. And so then, as we're transformed by His grace, we, we cry out to Him, Lord, here's my heart, take and, and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. It's God who works in us to will and to do that which brings Him pleasure and glory and honor and is for our good. We shine God's grace as God Himself faithfully works in us. In us. He prays for them to be sanctified through and through, to be made like Jesus through and through. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that the one who started this work, the one who began this work in you, will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns, it is the destiny of every believer to have no more sin, to be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the true predestination. If you're in Him, you have been predestined to be made perfect in Christ. Not now. Now progressively, yet imperfectly, then completely. But it is God doing the work. It's not my effort. By His grace, He allows me to partner with Him in obedience. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, progressively making me in practice who I already am in position because of Christ. It was the same grace same grace that saved us. It's the same grace that sanctifies us. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He closes with this. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy, holy kiss. It's not so much a command. It's, it, he's sending his greetings to, to them. But there is a principle in it. When we are grace people, people who have been changed by his grace, that grace flows out to others. So when we gather together, it's not right for us to just sneak into our seat and then sneak out the door. It's not right for us to sit like a bunch of people in isolated pods having our little individual moment of, of worship while we're physically together but emotionally separated. What he's saying is, I wish I were with you, so please give my greeting to the brothers and sisters through this, uh, this social convention of a holy kiss, notice he points out a holy kiss. It's important, truthfully, because within the church, there should be such intimacy that it would otherwise freak us out. We should be so invested and close to and open with one another that it is that it would be, let me say, apart from the Holy Spirit's guidance and protection, Almost a dangerous thing. Intimacy always is. So because of the grace that is in us, because of the grace God has given us, that grace should flow out of us with a holy affection. He charges them to read the letter to all the brothers and sisters because we all need this message. And he closes 
with this single line, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How is it with you? It's with you when you live in light of His return. The grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ is with you when the transforming grace of our returning King shines through you. It shines through you because you are grateful so that the grace that shines through you is an expression of your worship, your praise, your thanks to God for all that He has done. To God be the glory. I'm going to pray and then we're going to close with a song that we normally only do at Easter time. It seems like, and we probably do it other times too, but it sure seems like it's only Easter. It's a song of, of rejoicing, a jubilant song. Because as Christ followers, when we've been transformed by His grace, we should live jubilant lives. We should be always rejoicing. Because whatever goes on down here doesn't even come close to what He did for us. And it doesn't even compare to the glory that will be revealed in us when our King returns. Let's pray. Father God, as we, as we prepare to leave this place, we, we want to do so with singing and with joy and with happiness. Overwhelming desire to know you more. Overwhelming desire to express to you our thankfulness, our love. Because the reality of your grace given to us in Christ has changed every part of our lives. Oh Lord, do whatever it takes to, to humble us. For some of us that means lifting us up. For some of us that means knocking us down. But Lord, we trust that you are faithful and you will do it so that we will be blameless on the day of his returning because our Redeemer lives. We pray this in His name. Amen.